Good day. This is the 75th edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christoph. On the program today, I'm going to be featuring an interview that I did with Neha Vora, uh, who is an author and also a professor uh, in anthropology at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. This conversation um, is surrounding the uh, realities of the Gulf region. Uh, we talk specifically about Dubai, but more generally about the conceptions of labor and identity in relation to the Gulf, specifically looking at discourses around workers from South Asia, from the Indian diaspora, from other uh, nations in South Asia, and how those experiences are represented through a Western human rights lens. There's been quite a lot of conversation around the employer sponsorship programs within the Gulf region. Uh, it's called the Halafa system. Um, so we sort of break down the ways that uh, the discussions in the West around um, the Gulf region and the treatment of workers can often lead to sort of a culture of victimizing workers from South Asia, from other parts of the world within the Gulf, not looking at the complexities of Gulf society or the agency and organizing of workers uh, in the region. So uh, given that major human rights organizations have importantly been addressing this issue over recent years, including Human Rights Watch, and doing important work to speak to the details of labor abuses, I thought it would be interesting. I saw some work that Neha Vora had done about this issue and the sort of more layered complex analysis that Neha offers through her work um, that I think challenges the ways that Orientalist frameworks shape some of the advocacy around labor rights in the Gulf, removing the Gulf from a global context of you know, histories of indentured labor and structural racism on an international level. So these are the topics that we speak about. Here's my conversation with Neha. Sure. So I'm Neha Vora. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Lafayette College, which is in eastern Pennsylvania. Um, I've been there for almost 10 years now. Uh, my interest in the Gulf started uh, with my dissertation research. I did my dissertation research in Dubai on Indian diaspora, but primarily focusing on uh, people who lived in the downtown uh, South Asian center neighborhoods of Dubai. So it was primarily middle class and, um, and some upper middle class folks and some working class folks too, but not people who were living in um, what is portrayed as like, you know, the migrant labor camp area, the place where people think that Indian laborers are actually Indians are, make up the majority of the population that are everywhere in, in the city. So that was one of my interventions in my book that came out in 2013, which is called Impossible Citizens, is that in many ways, even though, so immigrants in the Gulf do not have 
access to citizenship or permanent residency, except in like very, very um, rare occasions. And some of that has shifted over the last few years in terms of um, different visa categories and stuff. But for the most part, no one can get citizenship or permanent residency. They're all tied to uh, renewable temporary work visas, or they're a dependent of somebody who's on a renewable temporary work visa. And even if you're a business owner and you have a 51% Emirati partner, uh, that person is supplying you with your visa. Um, so the question that I kind of had with that project was, how do you belong to a place when you don't have these like formal legal structures? Meanwhile, Dubai's Indian diaspora is incredibly entrenched. South Asian languages and cultures are pretty much ubiquitous in, in the UAE and, and in other parts of the Gulf. And one of my arguments was that Indians do belong to Dubai and they belong to Dubai in lots of different kinds of ways that are not formal citizenship, but through economic belonging, through affective belonging, through the kinds of social com communities that they form. Um, and while I was doing that project, I really wanted to push back against the types of representations that I saw of Dubai when I started. I mean, I started this project like in 2006, but I don't think that those representations have necessarily improved. Um, it was all that like, oh, you know, this like city built on nothing out of nowhere so quickly on the backs of all of these exploited workers. And then this underlying or even not even underlying trope of, or a, a, like, you know, wealthy Gulf Arabs who don't deserve their money and who are just, you know, exploiting all of these workers. And that is really like not the full picture at all. Uh, and, and so a lot of my work since then has been about pushing against some of these categories through which we know the Gulf and we think we know the Gulf, like the kafala system, which is basically just a term for a sponsorship system. It's not very different than an H-1B visa, to be quite honest. Um, but why do we call it, why do we have to like keep it in its Arabic and, and not translate it? That's already providing some kind of sense that it's exceptional, it's exotic, right? Um, and so I push against a lot of the categories and the knowledge production about the Gulf that's out there, both academic and, and media. But then I also have been lately focusing on um, what do de-exceptional uh, accounts of the Gulf look like and, and what kind of political stakes are, are, are there in us doing that? Because in a lot of these academic um, and media representations, even though, even the ones that like um, push back against, you know, worker exploitation often serves state interests in terms of like carving out who belongs and who doesn't belong. Citizens belong, non-citizens don't belong. It misses out on a whole range of everyday experiences in the city. And, um, and it almost just buys into the nationalist narratives sometimes that the, that the state has. So that's my work in a nutshell around this stuff. Um, and I'll just let you ask me whatever you want to ask me from there. Thanks so much for breaking that down. Um, so often in terms of our understanding of the ways that um, worker rights and human rights plays out in the Gulf, uh, there is those persisting stereotypes of the ways that workers from South Asia are victimized in the Gulf context. Obviously, there is a great deal of systemic 
violence in the labor uh, front, on the labor front. Um, but in terms of complexifying that narrative and understanding also uh, that sort of Western-based human rights organizations um, are not going to be the center of um, solving the situation uh, and also just sort of understanding also the agency that people of um, the Indian diaspora and also beyond have in shaping the actual culture and reality of Dubai as opposed to just being victims. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other things that I really found um, in my in my first research project um, on the Indian diaspora in Dubai was that the primary managers of the, you know, exploited workers that that we have we see the images of the coveralls and all of that kind of stuff. The primary managers are their own compatriots, usually, right? Or they're other immigrants from different national backgrounds. It's very rare for us to find like an Emirati um, foreman in, in a construction company site, right? So building in the complicity of, of the immigrant population and at different class levels and different nationality levels um, may brings in a whole lot of complexity, right? So not only are there Indian and other immigrant managers on, on the Dubai side or the Gulf side, like right now you see a lot of this happening in Qatar and Doha, right? Um, who are doing the everyday work of the kafala system. They are the ones who are, you know, holding the passports. They're the ones that are, you know, not paying on time sometimes. Like all of the kinds of abuses that we hear about come primarily from these middlemen uh, folks. Of course, that's not to say that the people at the top are not complicit, but just the, the everyday management of labor in the Gulf is not, is also outsourced, right? Um, so there's that. Then there's also all of these other actors that are involved, which is how do these, immigrants get to the Gulf in the first place, right? There's manpower agencies in the Gulf, there's recruitment agencies in, in places like um, Kerala and, and Nepal and, and, um, and everywhere, right? That, that are source countries for, um, for the Gulf. And those are also usually their compatriots, right? And in fact, those folks know, oh, well, you know, the people from Kerala are really savvy now. They know how to like, you know, they know what the contracts are like. They know how to negotiate better contracts. Let's, they're gonna be more expensive. Let's now move to Punjab because Punjab is where there's more poorer people and there's more people that need jobs. So like, like it's not just the labor market as some abstract thing that decides oh, we're moving our, our labor from this country to this country. It's also, you know, on the ground people who are experts and, and locals, right? Um, so if we are going to take down a system of, of Gulf labor, we have to kind of think more broadly than the nation state, uh, look at these kinds of transnational connections, and also, you know, think about the multiple actors. Another piece of this that is, you know, a more recent sort of framing that I've been thinking about, and a lot of other colleagues are thinking about this too, especially um, Andrea Wright. She's a wonderful anthropologist um, at 
William and Mary, and she works on, on both the historical and contemporary uh, experiences of Indian laborers in the Gulf, particularly around oil. Um, and she brings up a lot of this, which is that these, you know, who are the major employers in the Gulf? They are large transnational companies, right? If you look at the oil employers for, in particular, these are, you know, they used to be British colonial companies, then they were American, and now there's some kind of mix, right? Um, but these are transnational companies like Shell and things like that, that actually put pressure on governments to reduce um, their own liability, right? And, and to keep in place systems that allow them to maximize the value that they extract from their workers. So we can't talk about the state. We can't talk about the kafala system as something that comes directly from the state, right? The kafala system is something that is, and the laws around labor in the Gulf are something that are balanced between the interests of you know, very powerful corporations, as well as, you know, public and the kind of public viewpoint about labor and a lot of different kinds of stakeholders have, that are, you know, brought into the equation when these laws are being passed and negotiated and things like that. So we, if we're going to do that, then, then the problem isn't the Gulf. The problem is the whole world, right? Because these are, these are multinational corporations. They go everywhere. They're doing similar things everywhere. If you look at what's happening globally in the, in right now with immigration, places that are so-called liberal democracies, right, are moving more and more to things that look like a kafala system, like sponsorship by companies instead of oversight from the state, um, everything is temporary. In the US, these visas are called non-immigrant visas. They're particularly set aside to, to let you know that you are not meant to become permanent here. Although of course, a lot of people do, you can apply for two different kinds of visas at the same time. There's a lot of loopholes and like uh, ways to maneuver in, in both systems, right? But if you look in Europe, if you look in the US, if you look in Canada, there's a lot of these kinds of like temporary migration schemes now um, that I think are, are very much indicative of how, um, how capitalism is both, capitalism is working with the, the interests of the state, right? Um, because the interests of the state are to like protect this kind of notion of like the citizenry and like, and, and whatever kinds of ideas of identity and purity that are attached to it. Um, but also uh, it is a profitable venture to bring in a lot of these kinds of folks, even though, and those folks don't make as much money. They don't have as much um, leverage in terms of rights. They don't have, um, you know, they can be fired at any time. So, so they're more precarious. Even the folks who are working in Silicon Valley and are making like six figures, they're still paid less than their white counterparts, right? Because they are on these visa um, schemes. So that's kind of to, to kind of give it a larger picture in terms of where these forms of exploitation come from. We can't just take the Gulf and set it aside and say, oh, this is all limited to the Gulf. And it's like this container that has these exploitative things happening as if they're not happening everywhere else, they're happening everywhere else. Um, it just isn't as much of a spectacle for the Western imagination. Yeah, so just in terms of underlining that point, uh, 
kafala system. I mean, basically sponsorship um, system for uh, workers. Um, I mean, if we think about, you know, the Canadian context, right? Like there are so many examples of the types of sponsorship frameworks, even the entire point system of immigration uh, within Canada. I mean, the Republican Party in the US, the extreme right of the Republican Party has been trying to push a similar orientation for immigration in, in the US. Um, and uh, going back to, you know, the late 19th century and uh, indentured labor and uh, the construction of the railroad in Canada. And uh, just in terms of sort of like problematizing the ways that the, like there's a term, <laughs> kafala, and that's gotten so much coverage, but problematizing the ways that um, a human rights discourse uh, orients and exceptionalism around the Gulf and just sort of underlining the unexceptional nature of of that type of flavor yeah i mean the way that the there there's definitely very certain unique things about the gulf that i think make it prime for this kind of attention right first of all it's a um these are countries that are relatively new uh in terms of independence and they've really marked out um stark lines between citizen and non-citizen um there's you know, a rather ubiquitous national dress that comes about after after independence where almost every every citizen um, man wears a thobe, which is a white, white robe, and almost every woman wears a black abaya. So it's even like a stark visual marker of who, who belongs and who doesn't belong. Um, the demographics are also such that in places like the UAE and Qatar, citizens make up less than 15% of the population. So that's that's rare to find in the world is a place where you know immigrants are over 85% of the population and they have no access to citizenship. And then the other part about the kafala system that I think makes it slightly unique, although I don't, I'm not an expert on global migration enough to know this, um, is that your sponsorship is directly from your employer. So there is no st centralized state that you go through in the same way that you would US and Canada, which, which leads to less oversight, right? And it, it leads to greater chances of exploitation from the employer or from some contracting company along the way. Um, so those things are there for sure, right? But what makes it unexceptional is these kinds of entanglements, deep entanglements between public and private and corporate and state that, that participate in the production of the, of the local immigration system. Um, the fact that the local immigration system comes directly from um, British colonial forms of labor management, which was to pay people different wages categorize them by nationality, racialize them, house them separately so that they wouldn't, um, they would have less of a chance of collective action. And that's exactly what's going on in the kafala system today, right? So the kinds of, the kinds of excuses that you're here on the ground are, oh, um, you know, this people from this company, I mean, from this country are paid less than people from this country because the money translates to more when, at, in their home country, right? So in rupees, it would be so much more money than if you're paying in um, in euros. So in order to attract somebody who's European, we have to pay them more than what they would make in euros. Like that kind of like 
um, economic sort of like rationality is what people claim is the is the root of the system, but it's actually not true. There's like so much racialization built in and, and um, you can talk to people from from Western countries, like my colleague, Amelie Le Renard, she just wrote a book called Western Privilege. Well, uh, the English version just got published um, where she's looking at Western as a category, as a local category in the Gulf that commands a particular level of prestige and higher salaries and better benefits. But even within that, when she looks at non-white um, uh, French people, she's focusing mostly on French people, but non-white Westerners, um, you see some very different things, like in terms of, yes, that sometimes they can access that status, and at other times, they are treated as if they are not, you know, as Western as the white people. Um, so there's definitely a racialized stratification in the Gulf. It doesn't, like, map onto nationality as clearly as they would claim that it does. I guess final question, um, just in terms of like the fact that there has been a uh, push for action on these points in recent years, you know, um, around, I mean, the general situation of um, labor rights in the Gulf uh, around the World Cup uh, in, in uh, Doha and other contexts, um, you know, of course, uh, there are important issues there, but why in the context of these calls for like labor rights is this more complex understanding of the systems at play important to consider while also acknowledging the issues that are being brought up? I mean, if you think about it, if you just take a negative spotlight and you shine it on a place like the Gulf and you say, this place is terrible, look at how everybody, look at how the Arabs are treating everybody else, right? you're not gonna get the stakeholders that you need to actually change the system, to be invested in changing the system because it's a very orientalist way of, of looking at um, a place like Qatar, um, but it's also false, like all for all the reasons that I just said, right? There's so many other people that, that profit at so many levels from something like the World Cup being in Qatar. And that starts with the World Cup, right? It starts with the, the, these transnational organizations that put on these world sporting events, um, which aren't really for the world, right? Because they're mostly in Europe um, or have mostly a European um, uh, spectatorship, that, the ones that can actually afford to go and fly there and, and watch the games and stuff. Um, so... This is common. You see it with every Olympics. You see it with every World Cup. You see it with every international sporting event. You see it with any of these large international like um, congregation type things that the poor are going to suffer in the places where those things are because there's going to be development. People are going to be displaced. Um, there's profiteering. Uh, and in, in Qatar, it's just ramped up in speed because the country government has so much money, right? And they can invest so much money in infrastructural development. And they basically built a whole new city. They've redone the road system in Doha. They've added a metro. Um, the city looks entirely different than it did a few years ago. Um, all in the name of the World Cup. 
but is it really just for the World Cup? I mean, the stadiums make up such a small amount of the the infrastructural development um, investment. Um, and who's involved in all of this development? It's not just Kachari construction companies, it's multinational companies, right? It's all of these experts, these Western experts, um, engineers and architects and designers and stuff who are flown in, paid like you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to design and to to bid and, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, they're not being blamed for any of this kind of um, uh, labor exploitation. The middlemen companies aren't being blamed for any of this labor exploitation. Then you just put it on Gulf Arabs as if they're as a at first as if they're a homogenous mass, and second as if they're all participating in this um, to the same degree. It 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 really is just an inaccurate. Um, framework. And it also is just incredibly imperialist because there is no human rights discourse that I've seen on migration in the Gulf that doesn't presume that the solution is an interventionist solution. Um, People don't talk to folks on the ground. Um, There are, I mean, albeit small, but there are definitely people working to improve labor conditions in Gulf countries, right? And, and, you know, working in really interesting ways, like uh, teaching migrant workers English, or, or, you know, finding ways to create uh, information campaigns about labor in the Gulf, or finding ways to actually um, connect people from different national and class backgrounds through arts and culture types of events and things like that. These things are really important to to cultivate and and investigate. And those are the kinds of people that should be, you know, given a front seat or or a seat at the table in terms of how, how do we improve these things. Instead, it's usually like some you know, well-paid consultant that comes in and talks about how to improve labor. And then it's, um, you know, these human rights discourses. So it, it's just unfortunate. I don't, I don't really see much changing. I mean, of course, you're going to change things from shame, but is that really going to create a long lasting change that is actually, um, you know, enlisting the majority of the population and wanting that change? I don't think so. Um, and I definitely think that there is a public um, attention to labor uh, exploitation and a public desire to improve labor conditions. Um, I definitely think so. I just think that it also turns people off. Even, even immigrants who are under the kafala system, it turns them off to see such a negative kind of like portrayal of Gulf countries like everywhere. Thank you, Neha. You're welcome. That was an exchange with Neha Vora, who's a professor of anthropology at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, an author. I'd encourage you to look up her work. You can find it in places like Geladia. This has been the 75th edition of Free City Radio. Uh, Thank you to one of my professors at Concordia, Wilson Jacob, for forwarding an event that featured Neha Vora that encouraged me to do this interview. 
Um, Free City Radio shares two new episodes a week and broadcasts on Wednesdays, 11 a.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal. I'm Stefan Christoph, and uh, you can find um, our program also through Apple Podcasts. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. And to finish the program, I'm going to play an excerpt of a piece by harpist uh, in Montreal area, Sarah Paget. This is a live concert that took place at Salarosa as part of the Howl Art series. It is a collaboration with another harp player, Robin Best, and it's an excerpt of Noonday Bells. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. <laughs>